Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We have a fascinating show for you this week. We'll cover pollinators and the climate, hardcore locavorism, and farming. Ahead on Seasoned, we talk with a reporter from WBUR about her attempt to eat a 100% local diet for one week on a shoestring budget. (laughs) It didn't go so well. We'll also hear from BIPOC farmers in the state about their experience farming in Connecticut and what motivates them. But first, a world without insects is a world without food. Our first guest is Oliver Millman. He's a science writer and the environmental correspondent for The Guardian. We talked with Oliver about his book, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. Oliver Millman, welcome to Seasoned. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. I love to hear about a tiny empire that's running the world because I thought that was just my children. (laughs) Yeah, mine too. Um, (laughs) But yeah, insects are the animals that pretty much run the show on Earth. We think we're kind of piloting the plane, but we're actually at the back sipping martinis. They're they're the ones at the front piloting the plane along with other kind of creatures and ecosystems that keep things ticking over. So, yeah, if you're thinking about the food we eat, the waste, where that goes, how that's decomposed, the kind of health of our forests and grasslands and other landscapes, really our kind of survival on Earth depends a lot on insects and um, often we don't think about that very much in those terms. We think about them as being pests or annoying, but they're actually very important. Yeah, to our food system, our ecosystem. And I think we're all familiar with bees being massive pollinators, but there are Mm. highly less glamorous insects that are pollinators that are responsible for things like apples, almonds, peppers, and berries. Who are these pollinators? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, honeybees get all the glory, don't they? Uh, We think about bees, we think about a kind of blackened, yellow-striped creature that kept in a hive and makes honey. But, you know, there's thousands of other species of wild bee that actually do kind of far more pollination in a broader sense than than honeybees. If you think about tomatoes, for example, bumblebees can pollinate those. Honeybees are not able to do so. So bees are, you know, a huge part of that. But flies are huge pollinators too. Beetles, butterflies, all of these different types of insects are. People who love chocolate wouldn't know or appreciate really that the whole $100 billion a year chocolate industry is dependent on a tiny little midge that can crawl inside the cacao plant and pollinate it. Whoa. Uh, there's no way to replace that tiny midge. No, you don't really think about that when you're, you're eating a bar of Hershey's or lint or whatever it is. But yeah, midges are really important too. Again, we don't really appreciate that or think about that when it comes to our, our food or other aspects of our lives. Do they also play a role in the making of ice cream? Yes, that's right. So cows eat alfalfa, which is pollinated by insects. Uh, cows, obviously, their dairy is used for ice cream and other dairy products. So, yeah, if you, you want ice cream, you want chocolate, you want uh, cranberries, cherries and almonds and melons, uh, if you want to kind of not die of starvation in the long run, be the insects around. Unbelievable. I think I'm still stuck on the midges and chocolate. I mean, I eat chocolate anymore. That's, that's really <laughs> messed with my brain right now, Marisol. I don't know. Can you help us break down what exactly insects do? Like, give us the quick crash course on the importance of insects and how do insects contribute to the food pyramid? 
So, I mean, insects have been around for like 400 million years or so. So they were long, around long before us. So long before the first human started going on to uh, TikTok, you had bees and other insects having this kind of amazing relationship with uh, plants. It's probably the most successful relationship in Earth's history is between insects and plants, if you think about it, from our own kind of selfish point of view, I guess. Because they, you know, worked out this relationship where insects could obviously spread uh, the pollen, help propagate these plants, help their survival. And in return for that, obviously, insects got this kind of nectar return, other food returns. So that's helped form the basis of modern agriculture, helped us be able to feed ourselves, essentially. They do a lot of other work in the environment. You you mentioned it was kind of unglamorous. If you think about all the kind of dead bodies and feces there is out there, insects helped decompose that. One researcher I spoke to said if it wasn't for insects, we'd be floating around in a sea of poop with uh, dead Uncle Jeremy floating on past us. So it would be a particularly grim place to be around. Literally like flies to Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's an adage for a reason, and now we know why. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. When European settlers first arrived in Australia, they brought a lot of cattle with them, not realizing, of course, that cows create a lot of waste, which the native beetles, the dung beetles, couldn't break down because they weren't used to cattle. They're used to marsupials and other creatures. So you had this crisis in Australia in the early days of settlement, white settlement of Australia, where the whole place was caked in just dung that couldn't be broken down. It hung around, it stunk, it poisoned the water and the earth. They actually had to import dung beetles from Europe to to break down the waste. It's just like a small example of what insects do for us and how we overlook their importance. And once this, this stuff is broken down, of course, it's recycled through the environment. The nutrients go into the soils, uh, into the plants and so on. Insects break up the soils as well. So if you want kind of healthy ecosystems to, to grow food or, or kind of healthy forests, you, you really do need insects around. People forget that when Central Park was made as a man-made or human-made park, they had to bring in insects. Otherwise, Central Park would cease to exist. I mean, For sure. there's no farm in Central Park, but it's certainly a vital part of, of New York City. Um, I wonder, you know, I think a lot of us have heard no farms, no food. I've certainly seen the bumper sticker. You take that a step further and you say no insects, no farms. Mm. So what are the major food groups we are at risk of losing if certain pollinators become extinct? Well, you hopefully won't get to the stage where we will lose all of them. Certainly they're under pressure and they're under pressure right now. There's research is already showing that the loss of bees is already starting to limit the supply of some key food crops such as apples, blueberries and cherries. We're already seeing that. And it's obviously different in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. I mean, there's areas of southwestern China right now where they have to send teams of people to fan out into orchards to hand pollinate the plants with kind of sticks with brushes on the end because there's just a lack of bees. The idea that humans could replicate what bees do is kind of um, fanciful, really, on any kind of large scale. If you think about the labour, the time, the cost, I mean, it would just be astronomical. We can't replace bees, so we need to preserve them. Uh, Unfortunately, that's becoming a harder and harder task due to the stresses they face in the environment. Um, I was lucky to go to, as part of the book, go to the Central Valley of California, where it's obviously the kind of food bowl of much of America and the world. You know, pretty much every managed honeybee hive in the US is strapped onto a truck and sent to the Central Valley every kind of January, February to pollinate the almond crops there. To keep this going, they have to 
do an enormous amount of treatment on the the hives because they're affected by disease, they're affected by pesticides in the environment, they're affected by habitat loss. This kind of artificial pumping up of their numbers just to kind of get through that pollination season to get the amount of almonds uh, produced and out into the world. About 90%, I think, of the world's almonds come from the Central Valley. So honeybees, you think of honey beekeeping as this kind of like hobby, this idyllic thing that, you know, you have a hive in the backyard and they make some honey for you to spread on your toast or something. Actually, it's kind of an agricultural input they are. They're, they're kind of like contract workers. And without them, the whole food system would pretty much collapse in the US. I mean, these honeybees are sent around the country like touring contractors, you know, pollinate blueberries up in Oregon, go to the citrus fruits down in Florida, go to Central Valley to pollinate something else. I mean, it's um, it's an incredible operation that's done all year round. And it's... Um, it's kind of amazing to think of our dependence upon them without really appreciating that. So will these foods be gone or is there a way to kind of engineer their whole existence? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, the United Nations has warned there's going to be a, a looming food security crisis this century due to the fact that obviously we have a growing global population where we're going to get to about 10 billion people by the midpoint of the century at a point when pollination service is declining. We're going to heading for a crunch point where we have more mouths to feed and less pollination in which to do that. So that leads to some unhappy choices. You either cut down more forest and uh, wetland and other kind of pristine ecosystems, create more farmland to get more yield, or you more intensively farm the farmland you have with more chemicals and other inputs, which is causing a lot of the insect decline in the first place. So there's no kind of real easy answer, I suppose. Yeah. A lot of us will look to technology, kind of vertical farming, the indoor soilless hydroponic kind of farming that you can be doing shipping containers, obviously creates far less space needed, far less pollution is created and so on. So that could potentially be a solution. Maybe the answer is a bit of a kind of compromise between the two, like you're not going to completely overturn the model of monocultural intensive big ag but you can kind of ameliorate it slightly. You could make it a little bit softer around the edges by having wildlife corridors that go through fields around the edges, I mean, that have wildflowers that support insects. That's beneficial. It's a win-win for farmers and, and the insects because the insects, they can act as predators on the pests in the fields that you're trying to get rid of. You can lessen the amount of pesticides you're using. There's a more kind of holistic, more environmentally friendly way that we can do farming in this country. Well, what about the insects? You said insects themselves, they can't be replaced, but are scientists working on a way that maybe we can engineer them somehow? Yeah, and there's lots of work being done to build robotic bees. Um, I spoke to someone who's in the Netherlands who's been building a robotic bee that um, he says is the most intelligent robot in the world. There's uh, work being done at Harvard University as well for a few years to build robotic insects. They've got these soft kind of muscles, but they're robots. It's quite strange. They're able to dive into water and explode out of water and fly and hit surfaces and then keep moving around. What? So they, yeah. And there's these drones as well. I suspect this company who have this helicopter style drone that they use to hover over orchards and pollinate it from above. They're doing that in upstate New York right now as a kind of trial for, for wider distribution. So there are these kind of technological solutions or proposed solutions, at least, for for doing something about insect loss. But again, the idea that we can replicate the job of something that's been around for 400 million years and do a better job (laughs) of it ourselves with our technology, I think is 
quite optimistic. Marisol, that's scary. <laughs> that freaks me out a little bit. A robot? Could you imagine a robotic? Oh my god! Bee or a robotic mosquito? Yeah, that's just creepy. Yeah, it's kind of like a science fiction film, isn't it? Where are we currently in terms of the decline of insects and our environment? Are we at code red? Are we okay? Yeah, pretty pretty bad. I think it's important to note to start with. We don't know the full picture everywhere in the world because not even all insect species have been discovered yet. There's one million named species. There might be five million. There might be ten million. We don't know. I mean, obviously they're quite cryptic. They're hard to count. Not everybody's out there looking for them. One scientist said it's like we've got twenty thousand scientists uh, researching one type of monkey, and we've got one type of scientists researching twenty thousand types of insects. So. We've got a big imbalance in terms of the resources we spend looking for insects and finding out what's happening with them. But the the glimpses we do have into their world and what's happening are, are not great at all. I mean, there was one study in 2018 that looked at all the research globally, again, incomplete, but they found that 40% of insect species are declining. There was a decline of about 1% to 2% a year in their populations. Another study backed that up. So you're losing, you know, 1 in 100 insects each year. In Germany, they did a study and they found that three quarters of flying insects by weight have have disappeared from nature reserves in Germany since 1989, which is quite astonishing when you think about it. Since the fall of Berlin Wall, Germany's lost three quarters of its flying insects, which is kind of crazy. Um, There was another study in uh, the rainforest of Puerto Rico, 98% decline since the 1970s. Denmark, 97% decline. British butterfly numbers have halved in the last 50 years. One in four bumblebee species in the US is in danger of being wiped out. Wow. I mean, these these declines kind of go on and on and on, and they're quite startling in their scope, in their scale. I mean, we may have lost 95% of the world's tigers, for example, but we've done that over kind of 150 years. We're talking about a nearly total wipeout of some insects in some parts of the world in you know just a few decades which is quite startling when you think about it in those terms so it's not great we're not going to lose all insects i think they will outlive us in the world we're just changing the composition of them quite drastically so we're we're getting far fewer of the things we like to have around the pretty butterflies the bees uh, the beetles and we're creating a world that's actually far more hospitable for the things we uh, don't like as much. Um, mosquitoes like a warmer, wetter world. And what are we doing? We're heating up the planet through the burning of fossil fuels and we're changing precipitation patterns. Um, cockroaches like the spread of humans and waste for them to feed on. And what are we doing? We're expanding our population. We're polluting the world in all kinds of ways. So, you know, fewer bees, fewer butterflies, more mosquitoes more cockroaches, more bedbugs. That's the kind of world we're, um, we're helping craft at the moment. We asked Oliver to explain the major causes of insect loss and what we can do to potentially slow their decline. Sure. So there's kind of three main buckets of why this is happening. One is habitat loss. So we've cut down a huge amount of our forests and grasslands and meadows that are kind of insect rich and replaced them with kind of monocultural tracts of farming urban areas, highways, industry, and so on. So that's uh, created a kind of a desert, really, in terms of um, food and shelter for insects. The second thing we've done is we've not only converted it into kind of uniform one-crop farmland, we've then sprayed it and doused it with a huge amount of chemicals. The neonicotinoids are the kind of the class of insecticides that are particularly harmful to to insects, not just pest insects, so you're not just killing aphids when you put that on fields, you're killing bees and butterflies and 
making them mad if they don't crazy if they don't kill them. I mean, the bees are just unable to fly as far. They can't find their hives. Their memory and logistical functions are completely shot by these chemicals. So, and then the third thing is climate change. So insects can survive in a fairly narrow band of temperature and climatic conditions, and we are kind of warping that. You know, spring is arriving about twenty days earlier in parts of the of the United States than it was a century ago. Flowers start budding, insects arrive, birds start arriving to feed on the insects. We're throwing that all off kilter. We're we're kind of scrambling the seasons, and that that's really harmful to insects. We talk a lot about the relationship between the insect decline and food insecurity. Hmm. Where in the world might the situation become dire first, Oliver? I mean, there's lots of parts of the world, isn't there, where you have kind of small holdings farmers who um, they farm the land around them essentially for themselves and their communities. Uh, And I think those will be hardest hit because they're really dependent on their surroundings and um, those communities in poorer countries, developing nations will will inevitably be hurt the worst. Um, I think you will see inequities in rich countries such as America because the price of certain foods will go up and obviously certain people won't be able to afford them. So you start getting kind of luxury strawberries, luxury uh, cherries, luxury blueberries. It'll become a treat, like what meat was, I suppose, back in the day where you'd have a steak once once or twice a year because it was so expensive. Yeah. That's probably likely where we're heading. It's a familiar pattern, isn't it? The poorest in the world will, will unfortunately suffer first and hardest. The wealthiest amongst us will still be able to uh, eat our chocolate and almonds uh, unhindered. Can you just kind of elaborate on kind of the counterintuitive concept of eating insects as a way of saving them? Because I have these grasshoppers and they're delicious or maybe they're just nice and crunchy. The things I put on them are delicious. Either way, it works. A lot of people say they're quite nutty or quite... (laughs) I haven't tried one yet, but there's certainly lots of companies now making kind of cricket protein bars and things like this and uh, restaurants putting them on the menu. Yeah. I mean, of course, in many parts of the world, insects have been eaten for you know centuries Absolutely. it's not a weird thing i think for western diners it's still a bit freaky isn't it there's a few things in their favor they're full of protein they're pretty good for you right zinc all the vitamins you need and in terms of the environmental impact it's far less than eating meat in particular particularly beef we create a huge amount of air and water pollution from raising beef uh, and it worsens climate change because we deforest huge parts of the world to, to create pasture for for cattle. So a lot of the things affecting insect loss and other species and ourselves would actually be helped if we switched away from eating beef to, to eating insects, weirdly. It would actually help them because you can raise them in small spaces. You don't create as much pollution. The math works out favorably in terms of the amount of space and effort and money per the amount of calories you're creating because you can yeah you could raise a trillion crickets in a shipping container that would be i don't know oliver i don't don't think i I could trade my ribeye for a a box (laughs) of crickets i don't think i could do it how has your appreciation of insects increased because of the work you've done writing this book it has massively i mean i really admire them i mean they're amazing survivors they they kind of adapt incredibly they're actually far more intelligent and conscious than i thought if you think about bees yeah you know you can teach them to play soccer they look after each other's young, remember good and bad experiences. They can kind of count. You know, they have a kind of form of consciousness that you wouldn't call human, but is their own kind of form of consciousness. And I think it's it's worth thinking about that a little bit rather than just thinking they're the, these kind of brainless, buzzy things. They're actually, they're actually much more than that. 
You know, Oliver, I had heard another interview you mentioned about bees playing soccer, and I'm so happy you brought that up. <laughs> I mean, the thought of teaching a bee to play soccer is just incredible. I mean, is that a real thing? It is a real thing. Yeah, with food rewards, they can learn to kick the tiny little ball around. Wow. If your local soccer team is looking for a new striker or something, then uh, maybe a bee is the one. I mean, they're good in the air. <laughs> <laughs> That was Oliver Millman. He's the author of The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, could you eat a 100% local diet for a week? It's actually a lot more challenging than it sounds. I'll talk with a reporter from WBUR about her hardcore locavore experiment. I was just constantly thinking about food and where am I going to get that salt and how much money do I have? And it really just became all-consuming. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Our next guest is an award-winning public radio journalist. Andrea Shea is currently a senior arts reporter at WBUR in Boston. But it was a story about food that caught our attention. It's called, I tried to eat like a hardcore locavore in New England for a week. Here's what I learned. Andrea lives just outside of Boston, in eastern Massachusetts, and started her experiment in early spring, so the planting season was just beginning. She doesn't eat very much meat, so finding local meat didn't really figure into her challenges, but it was plenty difficult, impossible even, for this resourceful reporter to eat a 100% local diet for a week. Chef Plum talked with Andrea about her experiment. Let's talk a little bit about the parameters you set up. Like, What were the rules you set for yourself when it came to this? Well, it's interesting. I... I can say I set them up, but it was really my editors <laughs> who, um, you know, kind of collated information and looking at what different definitions of eating local would be. And they're kind of across the board all over the map. They can be anywhere from 100 miles to 400 miles. Some people eat regional diets, etc. So they basically decided on a 200 mile radius from where I live, which is just right outside of Boston. And then they gave me a budget of $115 for the week, which is about half the average grocery bill and food stamp allotment for a two-person household. Wow. That's tough. Yeah. I mean, you're buying fresh vegetables. Let's be honest, that's not easy. 
Right. And with inflation. And then also the thing that really became difficult was um, pantry items mm. because you don't buy those every week usually, right? But I couldn't use the olive oil that I had in my pantry because that's not made locally. Interesting. I couldn't use the vinegar that I already had because it wasn't local vinegar. I couldn't use all of the spices because maybe some of them are produced by a local company, but their ingredients aren't local. Well, that's obviously a big challenge there, but what are some of the other challenges you had of eating a 100% local diet? I mean, you missed a lot of things. I'm obviously from reading the piece, coffee being one of them. Yes, coffee was the the big one. Um, I mean, I've gone off caffeine before, but I've drank decaf coffee. But coffee, we have tons of local roasters in the Boston area, but the beans are coming from South America, Central America, Hawaii, Africa. And, you know, it's like, A, missing that ritual of having that hot beverage, that thing that gets you out of bed and be not having the caffeine. So my chemistry was definitely off and I felt unfocused, I felt foggy. I had a headache that first day for my first shopping trip. I was only allowed to go to two shopping locations because they didn't want me just like driving all over and hunting for all of the things because that's not what like a typical person has the time or the money or now the gas to Mm -hmm. go and do something like that so i went to stop and shop first uncaffeinated and (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was tricky and i mean i saw some things immediately like locally foraged fiddleheads so i gps the farm And that was okay. That was within my range. It was from Massachusetts. And then there was a local shelf with all these products like sauces and teas and just like condiments, really, crackers. But if you pick up one of those products, the ingredients, if it has sugar, that's not local. If it has vinegar, that likely isn't local if they're mass producing this product. That kind of like was one of those light bulb moments of, oh, you know, it had this sign promoting buying local. And yes, it's supporting local businesses, but the ingredients themselves weren't necessarily local. You go to Stop and Shop and you're trying to find out where things come from. I'm guessing you're talking to the produce guy there. And do they even know? Could they even answer any questions like that for you? To be honest, there, I kind of knew that there wasn't going to be a lot of local. So I just kind of looked around. And I love food. I make food. I go to farmer's markets. I go to farms. I consider myself a very food-oriented person. You know, I knew it didn't take long walking around the produce section to see, look at the labels and even the apple cider just says product of USA. Right. You know, I certainly took some notes as to contacting a few companies to ascertain exactly where, let's say, their maple trees are for maple syrup. I mean, the maple syrup section just kind of blew me away and stopped me in my tracks and stop and shop. It was just loaded with so many different kinds of maple syrups. And again, some of them just said product of the USA. Some of them did say 100% Vermont. You know, I went to the fish counter and the cod, which I is Atlantic cod, but it was from Alaska. And, you know, you could find eggs, local eggs. I knew of some local eggs because of some reporting I've done in the past. Well, fish is a big staple of your diet. I mean, you eat a lot of fish. But I was just curious. I know in my grocery store, I can get local fish, fish from, you know, the sound by being here in Connecticut. Was it harder to find actual local fish within that radius? 
Right. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I could have gone to a Whole Foods, but we decided that that was a less accessible option for a lot of people. So it wouldn't necessarily, probably would have broke my budget anyway. I did end up going my, as my second location. I went to the Boston Public Market, which is in downtown Boston. You know, they receive SNAP yeah. and, you know, they try to make things accessible. And there's a bunch of different farms and makers all under one roof. Inside there, there is a um, a fishmonger called Red's Best, which is a great example of a fishmonger trying to be as local as possible, where every single fish not only is labeled where it was landed, but also what gear the fishermen use, the name of the fishermen, oh, etc. Cool. And, you know, of course, fish is still not cheap. So I ended up buying hake because that was the... The most affordable, I would have loved to have bought scallops or a bunch of oysters, but... (laughs) Not now. They're They're... expensive as heck now, that's for sure. Well, just going back to finding the fish at, like, Stop and Shop, what did you discover about the fish that worried you so much? Was it where they came from or the lack of really knowing where it came from? Yeah, lack of not really knowing where it came from, for sure. Although it did say cod from Alaska. And then later on, I ended up talking to my editor, and she had done some reporting on fish and uh, sourcing of fish. And she said, you know, a lot of the times, fish that's even caught in Massachusetts ends up going abroad. Uh, It'll go to, like, Japan or somewhere and then come back frozen. Wow. So it, it traveled what are we doing here? Uh, back to the Boston Public Market. When you were there, what were some of the challenges you faced even in that space that was meant to cater to a local boar like you? Right. Well, I think the season really played into mm-hmm. the, the the challenges. I went to one farm. Even some of the people that work there, there were some items, like I think it was onions, parsnips, possibly apples, that the folks that work there weren't quite sure where they were sourced. They knew they weren't from Massachusetts. And like for a farm at that time of the year that has a winter farm share, a CSA share, they tend to prioritize everything that they have that's local, that's coming from their farm in the winter, even though it's a lot of cellared stuff, maybe some stuff grown in a greenhouse or some you know cultivated mushrooms. They prioritize it for the CSA boxes. And so to kind of make up for that in the farm stand in this Boston public market, they do supplement with produce that's from New York or from up in Maine. You know, I just had to do my research. I mean, there's a, I love this company, Maine Grains, and they are part of this kind of grain shed where they're trying to reestablish a regional grain shed, a grain supply throughout the six New England states. And I ended up emailing the company. And while the grains are processed in Maine within, and I think just within 200 miles, like I was GPSing everything all week. Yeah. A lot of it, the pharaohs grown in Canada. Wow. Not too far from where they are, but from where I am. But then there was a great find because I was really freaking out about not having olive oil or any oil to cook with. I could have used butter, locally made butter, but I'm not a butter fan. And I wasn't going to just start eating butter. This one farm makes a butternut squash seed oil from locally grown butternut squash. Wow, okay. So that was like a discovery. Uh, And it was very flavorful. It was a very dark color, almost like amber and had a really um, interesting taste. 
but it was also expensive. And so buying those pantry items really, it broke my budget. Of course. I mean, all of it broke my budget. I just, knit, I did not make it through. <laughs> with I, I want some butternut squash seed oil. I've never had that. That sounds awesome. I want to try it. Yeah, nutty wow. and unique. And like they were also saying that they make noodles out of the, the hulls from the seeds. Oh, wow. Yeah, very interesting farm. So that's like one of the discoveries when you like, you know, you start searching. Like I also started searching for salt. Now, yes, I do live on the ocean, but my kosher salt that I have in my kitchen is not from here. And so I went to a spice store that's very oriented around sourcing and sourcing sustainably and sourcing actually from a lot of women growers around the world. But they did have a few Martha's Vineyard salts as well as um, from Maine. Expensive, though. Exactly. And I ended up getting a Martha's Vineyard salt, but for I think four ounces, it was like seven ninety five. Yeah, you know? it's crazy expensive. But worth it. <laughs> you got to season your food. So after your initial shopping exercise, you write the rest of the week was kind of filled with folly. What happened? I think one of the most interesting things in looking back on this is I have never done something like this for my job. I've never done this kind of participatory journalism where my body's chemistry is actually involved. So without the coffee and probably without some of the foods my body's used to having, I think my my brain and my (laughs) lots of things were just off kilter. So that didn't help. And I started worrying about being able to write this up, you know, everything I'm doing, every dish I'm making, and I'm photographing, I'm trying to make creative food with eggs and radishes and um, the same items, basically (laughs) overnight. I mean, I did get a pound of black beans from a Maine grower. And I know there are some in Massachusetts as well. So that was wonderful. One of the big follies was eating the pharaoh. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I thought I was safe with the main pharaoh. Then I got the email and I was like, oh, whoops. And <laughs> I mean, my editors acknowledged there would be cheats and that there would be, I likely might not make it. Did they set me up for failure? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but um, I think the folly was also within myself and like how it just rocked my identity and like, who do I think I am? And am I a spoiled brat? You know, look at me whining about eating eggs and potatoes, where that's a lot of people's diets on a daily basis, because eggs and potatoes are affordable. It definitely had an impact psychologically on me. And then the other thing was kind of feeling a um, like a scarcity mindset. All of a sudden, I felt like I was without and then became obsessed. And so I was just constantly thinking about food and where am I going to get that salt and how much money do I have? And it really just uh, became all consuming. What shifted for you when you learned about the Marco Polo exception to localism? <laughs> the Marco Polo exception, which my editor, who we can just trace this whole thing back to her, she uh, she, she sounds like a terrible person, the... by the way. Just... <laughs> <laughs> she's she's actually great. She gave me what we call a secret infusion of food because she had a CSA box and her family was just up to their eyeballs and yams yeah, and yeah, all the yeah. rest. And she was like, "Why don't you just come over and take the yams?" <laughs> you know, she actually gave me smoked mussels, but alas, they were in oil, and you know, I couldn't ascertain all the ingredients. I ate them later and they were delicious. (laughs) 
Yeah, so she told me about the Marco Polo exception that a lot of locavores use, which is basically allowing yourself items that uh, Marco Polo could have brought back on his travels on a slow boat that's unrefrigerated. So pantry items, so oil. Salt, seasonings. Exactly. And I guess, you know, at that point I allowed myself a cup of coffee and it really helped. Was it the best cup of coffee you ever had? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden, my brain starts exploding, and I'm I'm all you know, kind of excited, and make vegetable stock with all my scraps, and I'm, you know, just kind of. And it's also coming to the end of the week, so you know, you know, I'm knowing that that the, yeah, the yeah. end is near. But it it just made me think about how. It could be realistic to be a Marco Polo locavore with, say, a 400-mile radius. So that's more regional. Well, what's changed for you since your experiment last April? And has your shopping and eating, is it different now? My mind is different. Um, You know, I certainly... really like coffee now. (laughs) Yeah, I love my coffee. But I think about it every time I pour a cup. My experience of going to the store is different. I do think twice before I pick up an avocado because, of course, those are nothing near local and never will be. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I just think about farms a lot more. And I've always, like, tried to eat seasonally, but I realize now that, yes, I do that, but it's it's not for sustenance as much as it's for novelty and Yeah, and the joy of cooking, you know, fiddleheads for two weeks or whatever, or ramps or scapes, garlic scapes, things like that. You know, I mean, I try not to eat corn. I don't eat corn unless it's in August, pretty much in September. Same with tomatoes. I'm the same with tomatoes. I'm a, I'm a maniac about tomatoes. Don't put them on your menu in January. Stop it. <laughs> right. And it is it is that kind of New England thing in a lot of ways where it's like, oh, well, it's like the winter is long, but it makes the summer and the spring or the spring and the summer so much sweeter. Can we just talk about fiddlehead ferns for a second? They don't taste good. Why do we serve them? Oh, fiddleheads? They, they're not tasty. I don't like them. <laughs> they're not good. Yeah, I know. It is funny. I actually felt like... Because I had them and it was something that was different in my repetitive dishes I was making over that week. So the two nights I had fiddleheads, I was pretty happy. But yes, I think while they're in season, I eat them and I'm perfectly happy not to have them for the rest of the year. I don't I don't sit around <laughs> pining. You know, although I wish I had pickled some because they're pretty good pickled. That's mm-hmm. fun. That's fun for sure. Well, Andrea Shea, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you and uh maybe I'll try being a local for. Why not? I, I would love to have some uh eggs and radishes no maybe not (laughs) oh you're so welcome you know now it's summer though so there's a lot more yummy things to eat in connecticut and massachusetts and throughout new england that was wbur's andrea shea you'll find a link to her story including photos of her food finds her meal diary and her shopping list on our website go to ctpublic.org slash seasoned i'm marisol castro And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, a spotlight on the experiences of local BIPOC farmers. I actually feel very proud having dirt on me, looking all sweaty and tired because this is all my passion and energy that's going into cultivating something. You're listening to Season on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Here on Seasoned, we're all about shining a light on local food makers and farmers. We have an abundance of farms in our state, more than 5,000 now. But did you know that only 2% of Connecticut's farmers are people of color? This summer, our colleagues Patrick Scahill and Mark Mirko are bringing you the voices and images of BIPOC farmers in our state. In this spotlight, you'll hear from farmers in their own words about their experience farming in Windsor Locks, Fairhaven, and Danbury. Up first, the wife and husband team behind the Samad Gardens Initiative in Windsor Locks. We're literally, you know, running the same farm business. One day it's me, a white lady. The next day it's him, a um, black black guy. And that's the only difference. My name is Sarah Rose Kareem. I'm co-founder of Samad Gardens Initiative. Azim Zakir Kareem, co-founder of Samad Gardens Initiative. There was one farmer's market I had to work for. You know, this on the very last day, I show up and suddenly no one's coming near the booth. And she was like, why is no one coming? This is so strange. Why is no one here? I'm like, you got a black dude here. <laughs> this isn't, this isn't, you know, a place where you just find black people walking around. People will just kind of slide right past you and go to the white farmer. My first instinct is, is it really that? And then, and then I look and I'm, yeah, I have to agree. I have to agree. If a white man is selling ice and a black man is selling ice, we automatically assume the white man got superior ice. The white man's ice is colder. So if we're in that market and it's a white area, right, you have to qualify yourself as being worthy to entertain them. And then they tend to look at it as, like, oh, well, I'm, do- I'm doing you a favor. I have to make them like me. Who cares about the product? You have to like me. Mm, right. In black areas, if there's white competition, I have to, you know, play, play a card like, hey, come on, man, support a brother. You know, here we are doing for the family. What's good, kid? Hey, yo, I'm right, I'm right here from this environment. You know what I'm saying? I, I'll come from here. And if you look and if you go to the hood, we are the ones who run out of food first. White areas can hold on to their grocery store food and they have better food. Everything Azim just said about the need of everybody to eat. You, you can't debate on, you know, the, the good that you're doing if you, if you end up farming and you're feeding people, right? On some, on some basic level. I love things like animals. I've always been a studier and a researcher. And my mother always just had plants all around. I know nothing about no plants, but I love the bugs and the worms. How I got started with agriculture, that was my wife. And she's like, hey, um, so the farm I work at, they're hiring. They're looking for someone to help with harvest season. And I'm like, of course I'll do it. Yes, of course I will. You know what I'm saying? So, and I went and I'm, work, I'm all the way out in, in very white West Granby. The only black dude there, the only Native American dude there. And I had this incredible culture shock, just pointing and just, oh my God, that plant has peppers on it. And every white person is sitting there like, well, yes, of course, these pe- peppers grow off of plants. It's good job. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I'm like, no, you don't understand, right? Because where I'm from, where I'm from, I'm from the hood, right? We ain't got that where I'm from, bro. Like, you know what I mean? So just watching everything come out of the ground was complete culture shock. So in order to come back to where we have to be, not just as black people, not just Native American people, but as as a whole planet, we have to come back to agriculture. Then people will start to see, okay, well, we do kind of need each other. That's all this is. You put your hands in that soil. I don't care what your issues is. Wife and I had had arguments. So you didn't wash the dishes. Oh, yeah, well, blah, 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 blah. We start working in that soil and there's... There's thing, there's biology inside the soil that sends a light signal through your nervous system that hits your brain, that has your brain release beautiful, joyous chemistry that makes you feel good. Everyone I've seen who come out here with a bad attitude mellows out immediately. They get their hands in the soil, you'll see a change. 
Next, you'll hear from Sochi Garcia. She's an urban farmer in the Ferry Street Community Garden in New Haven. Growing up, my family made agriculture a taboo subject because it was a method of survival rather than a passion-seeking career. My name is Sochi Garcia, and we're in New Haven, Connecticut. Agriculture for me is reconnecting with our indigenous ancestors. My parents are from Mexico, and I was born here in New Haven. My parents themselves were farm workers, but they just called it work. They were raising stock, they were growing vegetables, and they were also selling them. And my mom's stories, uh, she likes telling me, is like those hot summer days where she had to sell this thing called Alegria, which is made out of amaranth. She would sell them by the stack and she would go to different markets throughout their little town of Laxcala. She would just hate it because it's like, you know, there's so many people that are competing selling the same thing. But I understand why, because it was a forced thing for her survival. My only farming experience has been in New Haven and I've only done it for the past couple years. So for me, it's more localized in the sense where it's just urban farming slash community garden. When I eventually told my parents, they were more disappointed than they were excited for me. And I was expecting that. I actually feel very proud having dirt on me, like looking all sweaty and tired because this is all my passion and energy that's going into cultivating something. One of the things I noticed when I first started working here is we were growing so many things that were out of touch from the cultural food palette in the area, specifically Fairhaven, which is primarily Spanish-speaking people. Over time, I've been more of an advocate to grow things like more squash because there's um, squash flowers and people use that for soup, especially in the Mexican culture. So it's just being able to grow what's sustainable on the farm, but also enough for it to provide for others. Something that my parents told me, it's like, we worked for a better life for you, but when they saw how dedicated I was cultivating the land, they no longer feel that sense of disappointment. They actually feel happy and they appreciate me, um, especially when I bring them some vegetables. They're like, thank you. And I'm like, that's what I thought. And when I tell this to my grandma, she's just like, so so happy for me she's like yes you are you are my blood you are a true mexican it's like working hard and i feel very happy and honored for my family finally these new yorkers turned connecticut homesteaders are farmers and advocates educating young people about food security and the roots of farming in the united states we are not a traditional ag family we're new yorkers right we came here with like a dream and like a compost box my name is Elizabeth Guerra. I am co-owner of Cimarron Farmstead. My name is Hector Gerardo, farmer and co-owner of Cimarron Farmstead in Danbury, Connecticut. Cimarron in Spanish means maroon. So Cimarrones were people back in the colonial times that were runaway slaves. And so they would they themselves were, were considered Cimarrones and they, they would move into these uh, spaces, these colonies called Cimarrones. It's spelled C-I-M-A-R-R-O-N in Spanish, but our kids' names, the initials are S-E-A. And so we were like, all right, we might as well just do kind of a play on words. We grow first for our family and then we grow for the community. I started first by composting. So I picked up my red wigglers uh, from Union Square and we started composting on our, on our fire escape. And then we noticed that we could use that compost to turn it into soil. And that's really how we started. We just started growing on the fire escape, which you're not supposed to do, but whatever. We're New Yorkers <laughs> on the fire escape on our windowsills. 
we are farmers, but we also advocates. So we started, you know, doing trainings around food insecurity and food systems in the United States. While teaching our young people, we decided to do urban farming with them. This encouraged us to have our own farm. A lot of people don't think, but as people of color, we were brought here as slaves. So we were, we were farming for generations. So we want to bring young people so we can teach them um, how to do this, this trade that's been forgotten. That is usually white men with plaid shirts that you see on TV and you usually don't see people like us farming. My family is from the northwest province of Esmeraldas in Ecuador. My mom lived on the farm when she was in Ecuador, and so my mom always made sure that we, she always had like a little planter in front of her house. I come from the Dominican Republic. I'm an immigrant. Even within my own community, I don't fit because, you know, I have an accent. Sometimes I bust out with my Spanish, and they get confused, like, what's this guy with dreadlocks talking Spanish? Overall, 95% of all farmers are white. For me, it's finding that balance of where we fit in this farming world, especially in Connecticut. So I think the statistics are really interesting, too, just because it's what people define as a farmer. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the people who are actually on farms doing the work, they're not defined as farmers. And so I think the change in like culture, the change in how we define what farmers are and who does the actual work would change those statistics completely. Black farmers do exist and backpack farmers in Connecticut, in the urban area and in the rural setting. So um, look for local urban farmers, BIPOC, buy BIPOC. Yeah, buy local. <laughs> buy right? local, There's... be locavores. I just learned that word. <laughs> uh, be a locavore and just eat, you know, buy everything local. Or as much as you possibly can. Those are the voices of local farmers profiled by Connecticut Public's Patrick Scahill and Mark Murko in a piece called BIPOC Farmers in Connecticut. Maybe small in number, but they have plenty of stories to tell. It's part of a great series, and we'll put the link to it on our show page. Go to ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyanakin, Katie Tolarski, Emily Cherish, and Catrice Claudio. Michaela Savitt helped with this episode as well. Our interns are Anya Grandalski and Mira Raju. To keep up with the latest on Seasoned, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. We're at WNPR on Twitter, or follow the hashtag SeasonedCT on all platforms. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can catch past episodes of Seasoned on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and never miss our conversations with people making and growing great food in our state and beyond. See you next week. Bye.